Before we get into today's episode, please take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating and a review. We read them all. Now on to the show. This is the story of Anthony Tone Dougie Alonis, an aspiring rapper who posted rap lyrics on Facebook about killing his estranged wife, shooting a kindergarten class, and blowing up an FBI agent. Tone Dougie says he was simply inspired by Eminem, but the federal government saw things differently and prosecuted him for transmission of threats in interstate commerce. Tone Dougie's case eventually reached the Supreme Court, where only one justice would have upheld his conviction. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, we're looking at Elonis versus United States. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. These are the musings of Anthony Alonis, an aspiring rapper who was having a rough time in the summer of 2010. His wife of seven years left him and took their two kids with her. He worked at an amusement park in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and coworkers started noticing some bizarre behavior. On a few occasions, Alonis's boss sent him home from work because he couldn't stop crying. A female coworker reported some inappropriate behavior. And then he posted a photo on Facebook from a Halloween event where he was holding a pretend knife up to a coworker's neck. I wish, read the caption. Alonis was fired after his boss saw the post, and that's when he started posting more and more on Facebook, and his posts became increasingly violent and menacing. Two days after he was fired, he wrote, Y'all think it's too dark and foggy to secure your facility from a man as mad as me? You see, even without a paycheck, I'm still the main attraction. Whoever thought the Halloween honk could be so f***ing scary? Alonis' Facebook posts would land him in hot water with the federal government. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here's John Elwood, an attorney at Arnold and Porter in D.C., who represented Alonis. And when he was unemployed, let us say he was online too much, like many people of that age, and I uh, feel like a very old person saying this, he apparently thought any thought he had was worth expressing and worth expressing publicly. And so uh, he started posting all of his thoughts uh, about his life onto Facebook. He started out with just prose, you know, just saying what he was thinking on Facebook. And then he got ever more elaborate. He fancied himself as something of a, a champion of free speech, but he started listening to very angry rap music and he discovered that it made him feel better than listening to sappy music. He started out after the, you know, the breakup by listening to sappy music and he began feeling better and more empowered uh, listening to angry rap music. And I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, Eminem, Marshall Mathers, had a bad breakup with his wife. And he wrote several songs that were just absolutely terrible. Um, and that, uh, you know, basically fantasized about killing his wife, uh, his ex-wife, Kim, 
uh, in various terrible ways, and that obviously resonated with Elonis. Elonis's posts about his estranged wife, Tara, read like wannabe Eminem lyrics. There's one way to love you, but a thousand ways to kill you, read one post. And as a result? She got a protective order against him, and that only prompted him to ramp it up more. And he began styling his posts as rap lyrics from an alter ego who he called, instead of Anthony Alonis, he, he styled it as Tone Dougie. Ramp it up indeed. Here's what he posted after Tara got the protection order. Pull up your order and put it in your pocket. Is it thick enough to stop the bullet? Try to enforce an order that was improperly granted in the first place. Me thinks the judge is an education on true threat jurisprudence. And prison time will add a zeros to my settlement. And worst comes to worst, I've got enough explosives to take care of state police and sheriff's department. At the bottom of this post, he linked to a Wikipedia article on freedom of speech. As John explained, Alonis was something of a legal hobbyist and uh, did a lot of research into true threats. And so he would sprinkle between his, you know, fantasies about killing his ex-wife would be, you know, he'd sprinkle in little bits about true threats, jurisprudence, and whether uh, his posts constituted true threats uh, under his understanding of the law. Alonis also posted about making a name for himself by shooting up a kindergarten class, a statement that has an even more terrible resonance now. At this point, his former employer had tipped off local law enforcement and the FBI. Two FBI agents paid Alonis a visit at home, after which he posted, You know your shit's ridiculous when you have the FBI knocking at your door. Little agent lady stood so close, took all the strength I had not to turn the bitch ghost. So the next time you knock, you best be serving a warrant. Bring your SWAT and explosives expert while you're at it. Cause little did you know I was trapped with a bomb. Touch the detonator in my pocket and we're all going. The FBI, as you might expect, didn't take this lightly. Elonis was arrested and charged with violating the federal true threats law. That's 18 U.S.C. Section 875C, which makes it a crime to transmit in interstate commerce any communication containing a threat to injure another person. But, dear listener, I bet you're wondering, how does this square with the First Amendment? We asked Adam Liptek, the New York Times Supreme Court correspondent and First Amendment expert, to break this down. Well, the American tradition is to have a very robust First Amendment unless you're one of those excluded categories. Such as libel, fighting words, obscenity, and incitement. But back to Adam. In which case, you're out of luck. Whereas most of the rest of the world has a more proportional approach where you balance the interest that speech uh, suppressive provision is meant to accomplish against free speech values. Here we have this much more categorical approach. Most of those categories are not as hard as true threats to define. That's not to say they're easy, but libel, obscenity, incitement, fighting words, you're maybe a little more apt to know them when you see them. When it comes to true threats. It's ultimately a matter of context. And Tone Dougie perhaps wanted to be speaking to the world. But unlike Eminem, NWA, Ice-T, and countless others, Tone Dougie wasn't speaking to the world. As John put it. If he would have started out in open mic nights and done it that way, it probably would have gotten him into less uh, trouble uh, then he got into posting it on Facebook in open posts. 
Um, and I, I also think that as an aside, um, we probably wouldn't have even been talking about this except for after the FBI came and interviewed him about some of his posts, he then had the bad judgment to post uh, some lyrics that uh, about the FBI, and they really don't have a sense of humor about that. Adam summed it up. The context was much narrower and his audience was much narrower. So I guess that's a significant difference. And in these threats cases, the court has long looked at context. In 1969, it ruled that a draft protester who said something like, if I ever get my hands on a gun, the first person I'm going to go after is LBJ. I'm paraphrasing. And the court said, well, that was conditional. It was set at a rally. It wasn't taken seriously. So that context made it not a true threat. Here, there's no question but that the estranged wife felt threatened. She said that and nobody doubted that. But still, context and perhaps intent matters. What happened next? A grand jury indicted Alonis on five counts of violating the true threats law, and he moved to dismiss the indictment for failure to allege that he intended to threaten anyone. The district judge denied the motion, saying, based on binding precedent, the government just had to show he intentionally made the communication, not that he intended to make a threat. The judge also denied Alonis's request to include a jury instruction that the government must prove he intended to communicate a true threat. The jury convicted Alonis on four of the five counts. He was sentenced to three years, eight months in prison and three years supervised release. On appeal, the Philadelphia-based Third Circuit upheld his conviction. Next stop, the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, Tone Dougie wrapped himself in the flag, arguing the First Amendment's basic command is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds it offensive or disagreeable. Indeed, the Supreme Court has been increasingly skeptical of overbroad laws or other government actions that chill lawful speech. As Walter Sobchak says in The Big Lebowski, For your information, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected prior restraint. This is not a First Amendment thing, man. And it's often in cases where you wouldn't consider the speech particularly popular. Consider some laws the Supreme Court has struck down. For example, the federal stolen valor law, which criminalizes falsely claiming to have received military honors. Or another criminalizing the making of animal crush videos. This, by the way, might be where my free speech absolutism runs out, if crushing animals can even really be called speech. And another prohibiting cross-burning with the intent to intimidate others without any proof of intimidation beyond the burning itself. Then there's the trademark cases of Asian American dance rock band, The Slants, and the clothing line called F-U-C-T. Fucked. In Matal v. Tam, the court held the government violated the First Amendment when it denied a trademark for The Slants because it was disparaging to Asians. The irony was that the band, composed of Asian members, had chosen that name exactly to reclaim the term. Justice Samuel Alito wrote, quote, The proudest boast of our free speech jurisprudence is that we protect the freedom to express the thought that we hate. But Alonis's case, strictly speaking, was not about free speech. What it was about, well, let's hear from John Elwood. Here he is arguing before the Supreme Court. The First Amendment permits restrictions on the content of speech for a few well-defined and narrowly limited classes of communication, clearly supported by history and tradition, including what this Court has called true threats. And until the late 20th century, 
American threat statutes required or were interpreted to require proof of a subjective intent to place the listener in fear. In other words, proof that Alonis actually intended to threaten his wife. And what did the government argue? Here's Deputy Solicitor General Michael Dreeben. This court has made clear that true threats cause fear and disruption to society and to the individuals who are targeted. And for that reason, Congress enacted a statute that depends upon a mens rea component and an actus, and an actus reus component. Mens rea is a lawyerly way of saying the mental state or intent. But back to Michael Dreeben. The mens rea component is that the individual has to know and understand what the individual is saying. Congress reasonably presumed that people who are speakers of the English language and who know that the words, uh, what the meaning of the words is that they speak, are accountable for the consequences of those words. So what did the government have to prove? Simply that a reasonable person would view these posts as threats, as the government argued, or that Alonis actually intended to threaten his estranged wife? as Alonis argued, or something in between. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wanted to know. How does one prove what's in somebody else's mind? In this case, the standard was, would a reasonable person think that the words would put someone in fear? And reasonable people can make that judgment. But how would the government prove whether this threat in the mind of the threatener was genuine. Here's John Elwood's response. The government would prove it up by, you know, proving the circumstances, what he said, uh, you know, how he saw people reacting to it, uh, his own personal statements about things at the time. It is a big step up from a reasonable person standard to at least have it based on his understanding that when I say this, it will put that person in fear. It's here. better. It's better, but not. But Justice uh, Ginsburg, if I could return to your comment, I just want to point out that uh, you know, there is a, there are a plethora of statutes that require subjective intent, you know, fraud crimes, drug crimes, and it could be proved, you prove a person's intent the same way you do uh, in all of those other cases through the, you know, circumstances surrounding it and, you know, statements to cohorts and things of this sort. Well, let me- Justice Alito, ever the federal prosecutor, observed. Well, this sounds like a roadmap for threatening uh, a spouse and getting away with it. So you, you put it in rhyme. And you put some stuff about the Internet on it, and you say, I'm an aspiring rap artist, and so then you're, you're free from prosecution. While Lito was concerned about the ways the law might be under-inclusive, some of the other justices were concerned the law swept too broadly. Here's an exchange between Chief Justice Roberts and Michael Dreeben. If you have a statement made in the style of rap music, as this one or several of these were, is the reasonable person supposed to be someone familiar with that style and the use of what might be viewed as threatening words in connection with that music, or is or not? So, Mr. Chief Justice, it depends on whom the speaker is speaking to. If the person is speaking to, to a general, a general, general audience, audience then I think that, that the individual has to understand that not everybody will have the same private meanings that that person attaches to rap music and will bring to the So table. that does subject the prosecution, the lyrics that a lot of rap artists use? No, not at all, Mr. Chief Justice, because in the context of those statements, it's pretty clear that the purpose of the communication is entertainment. People seek out 
rap artists because they are seeking some form of entertainment. And that is a So how do you start out if you want to be a rap artist? Your first communication, you can't say, I'm an artist, right? I, I think that you have perfect freedom to engage in rap artistry. What you don't have perfect freedom to do is to make statements that are uh, uh, like the ones in this case where after the individual receives a protection from abuse order from a court, which was based on Facebook posts that his wife took as threatening, he comes out with a post and says, fold up that PFA and put it in your pocket. Will it stop a bullet? He knows that his wife is reading these posts. That is not something that has First Amendment value. There are plenty of ways to express yourself without doing it in a way that will lead people to think, this guy is about to hurt somebody. What, are, what, about, the, what about the language at pages 54 to 55 of the petitioner's brief? Uh, you know, Adam, make a nice med for, bed for mommy at the bottom of the lake, tie a rope around a rock. This is during the context of a domestic dispute uh, uh, between uh, – you know, a husband and wife, there goes mama splashing in the water, no more fighting with dad, you know, uh, all that stuff. Now, so under your test, could that be prosecuted? No, because if you look at the context of these statements. Because Eminem said it instead of somebody else? Because Eminem said it at a concert where people are going to be entertained. Listening to this exchange, you can tell Chief Justice Roberts is uncomfortable with this genre of speech. But what would that discomfort mean for the outcome of the case? A few months later, the court announced the opinion. Here's the chief. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case number 13983, Elanis versus United States. Section 875C doesn't say anything about what a defendant thinks. It simply prohibits transmitting something that contains a threat. But there is a general principle in our system of federal criminal law that serious criminal punishment should only be imposed for conscious wrongdoing. So, he says, the jury should have been required to find that he intended to threaten someone before convicting him. We agree, at least to the extent of holding that the lower courts were wrong to uphold Ilanis' conviction. That conviction was based solely on whether a reasonable person would regard Ilanis' communications as threats, regardless of what Ilanis thought. That is a negligence standard, which is enough in most civil cases to support liability. But as a general matter, mere negligence is not considered enough to support a criminal conviction. The question is whether he meant to send threats in the first place. The jury was not required to find that he did, and so Alanis's conviction cannot stand. So Toad Dougie prevailed, narrowly, as Adam Liptak remarked. I think the majority opinion was plainly a product of compromise. And you can tell that because it said so little, and yet it commanded seven votes. And that's consistent with its author, John Roberts's general approach, that he would prefer to decide something narrowly with more votes. I wouldn't be surprised if in the drafting and the exchange of drafts, the First Amendment played a more prominent role, and even the level of intent was agreed upon by some number of justices. But to get to seven, it turned out the chief had to write quite narrowly. John Elwood agreed, saying, My own half-baked theory And in the unlikely event, I live long enough to see the justices' papers when they're eventually released. 
My pet theory is that the chief justice originally wrote an opinion that went further, but that basically uh, Justice Kagan was interested in a recklessness standard and uh, that threatened too much splintering. And so the chief narrowed the opinion uh, to keep everybody on board. It's a classic John Roberts, in other yeah. words. <laughs> if it, is, it, it is a classic. It is a classic John Roberts move if that's what happened. And although free speech issues pervaded the oral argument, the majority said it was not necessary to consider any First Amendment issues. But as Adam Liptek observed... The reason this is a First Amendment case, even though it's not a First Amendment case, is because the justices were truly engaged in how to reconcile a criminal law with making sense of speech where you have to take account of its aspirations, its context, its desire to be art, its desire to be therapeutic. And you could see them struggling with that. And you could see with the chief justice raising an argument, well, why is Eminem different? And I think the chief had to look long and hard to be able to find a couple of lines to quote that didn't have an obscenity in it. And then Justice Alito's comment that you can't let people hide behind a rap persona if they're doing something truly destructive, nasty, and criminal. So is it a First Amendment case? Formally, no, but in reality, very much so. As you might expect, not everyone agreed with the majority. Justice Alito wrote a partial concurrence, partial dissent, taking the majority to task for not specifying what intent is necessary to support a true threat conviction. He wrote, quote, Did the jury need to find that Alonis had the purpose of conveying a true threat? Was it enough if he knew that the words conveyed such a threat? Would recklessness suffice? The court declines to say, and attorneys and judges are left to guess. And Justice Clarence Thomas dissented, arguing that all the government needed to show was that Alonis knew he transmitted a communication and understood the ordinary meaning of those words in the relevant context. Echoing Alito's criticism, he says the majority, quote, throws everyone from appellate judges to everyday Facebook users into a state of uncertainty. All they know after today's decision is that a requirement of general intent will not do. But they can safely infer that a majority of this court would not adopt an intent to threaten requirement as the opinion carefully leaves open the possibility that recklessness may be enough. This uncertainty could have been avoided had we simply adhered to the background rule of common law favoring general intent. Justice Thomas continued, Although I am sympathetic to my colleagues' policy concerns about the risks associated with threat prosecutions, the answer to such fears is not to discard our traditional approach to state-of-mind requirements in criminal law. Because the Court of Appeals properly applied the general intent standard and because the communications transmitted by Alonis were true threats unprotected by the First Amendment, I would affirm the judgment below. Since Justice Thomas thought Alonis was properly convicted, he went on to explore whether the First Amendment nevertheless would protect his speech. He wrote, Alonis does not contend that threats are constitutionally protected speech. Instead, Alonis claims that only intentional threats fall within this particular historical exception. If it were clear that intentional threats alone have been punished in our nation since 1791, I would be inclined to agree. But that is not the case. True to form, Justice Thomas takes it back to the founding, and even earlier. Here's more. Although the federal government apparently did not get into the business of regulating threats until 1917, the states have been doing so since the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Shortly after the founding, several states and territories enacted laws making it a crime to knowingly send or deliver any letter or writing threatening to maim, wound, kill, or murder any person, and so on. 
These laws appear to be the closest early analog to 875C, as they penalize transmitting a communication containing a threat without proof of a demand to extort something from the victim. These laws were copies of a 1754 English threat statute subject to only a general intent requirement. He continued, Adopting Alonis's view would make threats one of the most protected categories of unprotected speech, thereby sowing tension throughout our First Amendment doctrine. We generally have not required a heightened mental state under the First Amendment for historically unprotected categories of speech. For instance, the court has indicated that a legislature may constitutionally prohibit fighting words without proof of an intent to provoke a violent reaction. Because the definition of fighting words turns on how the ordinary citizen would react to the language, this court has observed that a defendant may be guilty if he makes statements likely to provoke violence and disturbance of good order, even though no such eventuality be intended. In conclusion, he wrote, There is always a risk that a criminal threat statute may be deployed by the government to suppress legitimate speech. But the proper response to that risk is to adhere to our traditional rule that only a narrow class of true threats, historically unprotected, may be constitutionally prescribed. The solution is not to abandon a mental state requirement compelled by text, history, and precedent. Not only does such a decision warp our traditional approach to mens rea, it results in an arbitrary distinction between threats and other forms of unprotected speech. Had Alonis mailed obscene materials to his wife in a kindergarten class, he could have been prosecuted irrespective of whether he intended to offend those recipients or recklessly disregarded that possibility. Yet, when he threatened to kill his wife and a kindergarten class, his intent to terrify those recipients or reckless disregard of that risk suddenly becomes highly relevant. That need not and should not be the case. I respectfully dissent. So were Justices Thomas and Alito right that the majority's opinion would lead to uncertainty? It seems so, and yet the court has turned away several follow-on cases. One such case was brought by Jamal Knox, a.k.a. Mayhem Mall, who was convicted of making true threats for rapping that he would kill two Pittsburgh police officers. The cert petition in Knox's case, written by the incomparable Lisa Blatt, references Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. The Beatles Run for Your Life, Bob Marley and the Wailers, I Shot the Sheriff, NWA's F the Police, the police coming straight from the underground. and many others. But the petition also points out that, quote, vast increases in online communication make the issue more important today than ever before. Internet users deserve robust free speech protections, the petition reads, but at the very least, they deserve clarity. But for the time being, it seems unlikely the court will provide that clarity. And as for Alonis, his SCOTUS victory was short-lived. Back at the appeals court, John Elwood recalled, Well, the Third Circuit wound up affirming on harmless error grounds. Which means he lost, because according to the appeals court, Any jury would have had to found Alonis knew the lyrics would be interpreted as a threat by his targets and intimidate his targets despite appearing under a a quote-unquote entertainment-only disclaimer. Essentially, the Third Circuit said, given what he said, he had to have known that he was intimidating his target. The court explained that it didn't matter if the standard was recklessness or subjective intent, because no rational juror would have believed aloneness. 
So in the end, the substance of Justice Thomas's dissent did not prevail, but the result did. Alonis's conviction could stand. It wouldn't be Alonis's last run-in with the law. He's been arrested again and charged for essentially uh, cyber stalking, for harassing um, both the prosecutor of his case and also for his ex-girlfriend and also for his ex-wife, the same person who uh, he uh, was convicted of threatening way back when. So I know that he was arrested a couple months ago, but I uh, I don't know if he's been let out on bond and I, and I actually don't have any updates since his arrest to know where the case is now. I did a little digging and discovered Alonis was quite active on Facebook and Twitter until last year, presumably when he was arrested. And one of his Twitter accounts has been suspended. Alonis moved to dismiss the indictment earlier this year, arguing that the cyberstalking law is unconstitutionally overbroad and that his harassing emails contained protected speech. The judge denied his motion, but perhaps it's not the end of the road for Tone Dougie. As John Elwood put it, It is the unsavory characters who uh, are kind of the most likely representatives of our free speech rights, because after all, the savory characters are usually part of the majority and they don't need the First Amendment to protect their right to speak. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. I blame Alonis for making me join Facebook. (laughs) Because he continued to have outrageous posts on Facebook, even as the case was going on. But I I joined Facebook only so I could keep an eye on him. The Roberts opinion is kind of charming and quickly dated it's become. Its discussion of Facebook is talking to people who have no idea what Facebook is. But did it mention uh, the old feature of poking people? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't believe there was poking, no. I thought there was a decent chance that he would show up for argument and disrupt argument because he was a fan of a lower court scene in the People versus Larry Flint where Flint disrupted the court proceedings. My neighbor stopped speaking to me when I represented Alonis um, <laughs> because uh, she viewed him as such an unsavory character. She didn't like that I was arguing his point. Well, unsavory characters need lawyers too. <laughs> That's right. And should we should we do bleeps? I mean, bleep. even if... yeah. I like bleeps. Me too. I'm, a, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the use of the bleeps. Hit okay. your bleep button. Bleep. <laughs> Try to enforce an order that was improperly granted in the first place. Me thinks the judge needs. <laughs> Me thinks. Oh God, I cannot. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Me thinks. Um, serenity now. <laughs> Deep <laughs> wisdom of the ancients. <laughs> Deep wisdom. Okay. <clears throat> this must be like what it's like to be on the office when you have to read the funny lines, like when you watch the bloopers. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> as they penal, as they pe- penalize, I hate that word. As they penal, as they penalize transmitting. <laughs> Then there's the trademark cases of Asian-American dance rock band The Slants and a clothing line called F-U-C-T. Fucked. In ma- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I thought f- fucked might be hard for people to understand what you're saying. Well, you could. it could be F-U-C-T, fucked, or fucked, F-U-C-T. You Why know? don't you say 
F-U-C-T. Fucked. Yeah, okay. Um, 